Music Festival in Las Vegas. Stephen Paddock revealed once again the fragility of life, our vulnerability, and how easy it is to inflict pain on a massive scale. Once again, we have seen how often mankind's ingenuity winds up being used for violence. And perhaps the most distressing part of it is that in the scheme of things, the events in Las Vegas might turn out to be one of the smaller bits of bad news in the world. Civil wars, brutal violence, genocide continue to rage around the world. In our country, we've largely failed to notice that in Myanmar, which most of us couldn't find on a map if we tried, nearly one million people have been forced out of their homes, and in fact, out of their country in the past month, in reprisal for vicious acts of violence carried out by a handful of their people. We continue to see on unfold, both in the news and largely on Twitter, the growing threat from a nuclear-armed North Korea that seems bent on threatening us in order to accomplish its objectives in Asia. This is just a drop in the bucket. There's so much going on. If we are paying attention to the ongoing real-time news feeds and social media feeds, and, and as we watch these things unfold, we probably have each wondered at some point what's wrong with the world. And the answer is the same as it's ever been. Sin is what's wrong in the world. Now, we're all mostly, I guess, familiar with sin's impact on our personal life. We're drawn to do certain things that are not good and so forth. But we probably have given very little consideration to the truth that sin's impact is far deeper and more sweeping than just individual temptations to do the wrong thing in a situation. What we need to understand is that the Bible has by far the most cogent and rational explanation available for all the problems in the world today. And that if people understood God's word and what it says about sin more thoroughly, we would be less surprised and confounded by the evil we see around us. You see, when mankind fell into sin, it it didn't just tempt us to do things, but it damaged fundamentally everything about us and around us. Sin distorts the way that we think. It twists our desires. It clouds our judgment. It degrades our emotions. It skews our perceptions. It turns our focus inward instead of on the Lord. Sin damages our ability to process and respond appropriately to the experiences of our lives and the world around us, and and therefore it fosters increasing violence and conflict. So as the world around us gets increasingly selfish, increasingly angry, vitriolic, bitter, and violent towards those who are different or disagree with us, What should we as the church do about it? In the face of increasing violence at home and abroad, how should Christians respond? Now, it's terribly tempting to just retreat into the cozy confines of these walls here and try to ignore it all. But is that what we're called to do? It's really tempting, and you see it all the time, to demand that the government do more to stop evil from succeeding. 
But does that really solve the underlying problem of evil? Should our faith compel us to get more deeply, more intimately involved in addressing the real problem at the root of it, sin and evil, than we ever imagined or desired? The answer to these questions is found in the seventh beatitude. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We've been looking closely at the Beatitudes of Jesus. We have considered how the structure of the Sermon on the Mount makes very clear that what Jesus describes here as blessed represents the virtues and the attitudes and the behaviors expected of every citizen of God's kingdom here on earth. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are a citizen of God's kingdom right here, right now. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be passionately desiring and pursuing these qualities we see outlined in the Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit. Genuine mourning for the depravity of the world. A meekness towards others. A a desperate desire, a thirst and hunger for righteousness and mercy and purity of heart. These are the qualities that were perfectly demonstrated by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as as would-be followers of Him, we're called to cultivate these virtues and qualities and attitudes and values, even as we understand that they are ultimately created within us by the work of the Holy Spirit as He transforms our hearts. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are to be passionately pursuing each of these qualities. And this morning verse introduces us to an entirely new responsibility, one we may never have considered before. As we think about what a Christ-like response should be towards all of the anger, all of the hatred, the arguments, the clashes, the grudges, the animosities, the battles and wars that rage not only around the world, but in our own homes, in our offices, in our classrooms, in our communities. Because in this beatitude, Jesus is calling each of us to get directly involved in resolving conflicts. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, as has been true with each beatitude, there are two key concepts that need to be understood Who are the blessed, and what's the blessing? Here the blessed are the peacemakers, a Greek word that literally smashes together the word for peace with the verb that means to make something or to do something. So peacemakers are not just people who are personally peaceful and get along with everybody. They are people who are actively working to create and make and do peace wherever they go in the midst of conflict. Peacemakers smooth the waters at home and at work. They resolve disputes at school. They roll up their sleeves and engage in the difficult work of bringing hostile strangers together for peace. Being a peacemaker means getting involved in messy situations and that that we're in those messy situations. Our agenda cannot be our agenda. Our agenda must be God's agenda to make peace, even at the expense of our own personal preferences and, and causes. 
Peacemaking includes making sacrifices and taking risks, reputational risks, relational risks, financial risks, even physical risks. And we are to do it because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, our Lord and Savior, our Master and Example, died to create peace for us with God. We don't often think in these terms, but the reality is that each of us is naturally in a state of rebellion and antagonism towards God. Each of us is in a state of war towards God naturally. Our natural selves are selfish. right? We want what we want when we want it the way we want it. And in our lust for power, pleasure, comfort, or security, we will naturally do whatever it takes, even if that means breaking the perfect laws and righteous standards of the holy and righteous creator of the universe. Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. And we need to recognize that this shortfall is just not about some whoopsie kind of moment. It is a declaration of war against the living God that each of us have declared in our lives. As sinners who repeatedly break the law of God, Scripture is clear, we each deserve spiritual death for our betrayal, for our sin. For the wages of sin is death. And yet, despite that, despite what we deserve, right? We're always good to say, I deserve this. Give me what I deserve. Well, here's what we deserve, death. Despite that, Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy, sinless, righteous Son of God, the one Isaiah calls the Prince of Peace, chose to suffer that death for us. Jesus Christ paid for your sins and he paid for my sins, even though we were still hostile towards him. Romans 5.8 proclaims, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is Christ's great and glorious act of peacemaking done through his own broken body and bleeding body hanging on a Roman cross. By his sacrifice, Jesus Christ reconciled all who put their faith in him to the holy God who cannot tolerate the presence of our sin. Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says of Jesus, For in him all the fullness of God was, was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. And the peace of Christ is not just for those who have their acts together, who live moral and upright, clean lives and come to church every Sunday morning. The peace that Christ bought with his blood is freely available to everyone who puts their faith in him. Paul explains in Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Romans 5.1 summarizes, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of peacemaking that Jesus is calling us to in Matthew 5.9. Proactive, costly, painful, and sacrificial. 
that we're called to do this is made clear by the blessing. They shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers will be called sons and daughters of God. But as Scripture makes clear, every follower of Jesus Christ is a son or daughter of God. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Our faith in Christ makes us adopted sons and daughters of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ himself. And as children of God, we are to reflect the character and qualities of our Heavenly Father. And our Heavenly Father is a God of peace. And so we are called to be people of peace. And so we return here to Christ calling on our lives in this beatitude that as his followers, we must play an active role in making peace wherever we go. Hebrews 12.14 says we are to strive for peace with everyone. Well, that word strive is is not some passive word. It's not a a sit back and, and just mind your own business and turn the other cheek and you're good to go. Striving for peace is about actively trying to make peace. It should be a passion for us as kingdom citizens. It should be a priority for us to make peace in whatever environment we are in. We should be making peace with everyone around us, family and neighbors, friends and enemies, colleagues and rivals. We should be making peace wherever we go, in traffic, the grocery store, in the gym, in long lines, in work, in school, in church, in our neighborhoods and communities. We're called to stick our nose where it doesn't belong because peacemaking is our business. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So that's all well and good, but how do we make peace? We proclaim a gospel of peace and reconciliation, but how do we live that out amidst all the stresses and strains on our family lives and our professional lives and our school and academic lives and our church lives and just just the ridiculousness of Northern Virginia life in general? This morning I want to share a biblical pattern for making peace. And this is by no means the only way to make peace, but it is one that is firmly grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it has the power to dramatically transform even long-standing conflicts and and bitterness and hostility in our families and our friends in our community. And these biblical principles of peacemaking are, if you are interested in getting more information, they are described more fully in books written by Ken Sandy. And biblical peacemaking begins with a personal commitment to glorify God in everything we say and do. This foundational commitment alone actually transforms the way that we handle every conflict because it transforms the way we come into the conflict and what we bring with us. When we commit ourselves to glorifying God and we resolve that glorifying Him with our words and deeds is more important than than scoring points in an argument, than winning the day, by gaining our way at someone else's expense or by exacting revenge on those who've hurt us, we are transformed. And the dynamic is transformed. 
Think about what you do when you are typically in conflict with someone. I can't speak for you. I can only speak for myself. But if you're at all like me, what you, what you do is you spend lots of time planning out your arguments and your, your tactics, the ways you're going to utterly crush the opposition. And you replay in your mind all of the hurts and the, the grievances and the wrongs that have been done to you, and you get more and more angry while at the same time you're, you're devising clever and sarcastic and humiliating things to say and do that will ensure total victory. Does this glorify God? Is this what God wants you to say or do to another person he created in his image? Does sarcasm and and hurling mistakes in someone's face bring glory to God? Absolutely not. So when you find yourself plotting and and planning and and scheming and determining how you're going to win the conflict by burning down the house, you need to stop and ask yourself, does this glorify God? This is a terribly sobering question if you ask yourself honestly. It's one that should utterly reframe your thinking. It certainly does mine. Once I have seriously committed to glorifying God in any dispute or disagreement, it radically alters my tone, my language, my approach to the situation, even my understanding of what it means to have a successful resolution. When you commit yourself to glorifying God rather than yourself, you dramatically reduce the tension and the conflict in there. And so while we all know Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger, the question is how many of us remember that in the heat of the moment? My commitment to glorifying God is often the only thing that prevents me from unleashing the torrent of harsh words They're not going to win the day. They're just going to escalate the conflict. My commitment to glorify God is what allows me to soften my answers, to turn away a great deal of wrath. And and I'm not going to be perfect at that. Absolutely not. I can be a passionate guy. But it makes a massive difference when we take seriously the commitment to glorify God. And if you do nothing else to make peace... You will find that by approaching every conflict as as a way and with the intent to glorify God, you will dramatically alter the situation in a way that greatly shifts the odds of a peaceful resolution. But we do need to do more to actively make peace. And so second part of this pattern, if you will, is to get the log out of our own eye through confession. You see, when we are embroiled in conflict, whether it's with our spouse, or our children, or our parents, or our neighbor, or someone at church, or someone at work, or school, someone in the community, we naturally replay all their crimes and offenses against us. We recite the ever-lengthening list of sins they've committed, and we we are righteously indignant, and we are certain that they've wronged us. And whether or not that's true, though, Jesus commands us to turn the situation around and consider how we've wronged them. 
Jesus says we need to first stop, examine the situation, and deal with our sin and our responsibility for the conflict. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 asks, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In most conflicts, both parties have done something wrong. Maybe not to start it, but to perpetuate it, to escalate it. And there are clear exceptions, don't get me wrong, right? There are situations of abuse, there are criminal attacks. Clearly, the people in Las Vegas did nothing at all to Stephen Paddock. But as far as our day-to-day disputes... That would be the minority of cases. Most of the time in our daily experiences of conflict, there will be some portion of fault that actually belongs to us, whether we like to admit it or not. And I'm not saying it's divided 50-50. It could be divided 80-20. It could be divided 90-10. It could be divided 99-1. But if there is anything at all for which we are responsible for causing or perpetuating or escalating a conflict, we need to acknowledge that and confess it first to God, but then to the other person. Getting the log out of our own eye is not just a biblical mandate. In practical terms, it demonstrates humility and grace that often will open the door for the other person to begin to back away from their defensive position. Sometimes even to go ahead and confess their sin against you. You see, candor and authenticity and confession creates space for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts. To work in the heart of your opponent, the other party in the conflict, to to present to them a Christ-like example and to begin to diffuse their self-righteous anger aimed at you. And I get, right, they've wronged you. This feels terribly unfair. Why should I go first, right? They're the much worse person. But the principle is biblical. It is what Jesus said. And if it helps you, remember this. Though he was perfectly righteous and never sinned against anyone, Jesus went to the cross first. Jesus died before any of us ever even thought about repenting of our sin against him. We've dealt with ourselves. We have prepared ourselves. We have confessed our sin. But quite often we still have to deal with the issue with the other party, right? Now, wherever possible, making peace demands that If it's not a matter of sin, if it's just a matter of a a mistake or a a personal foible or shortcoming, that, that we should show grace to that person and just let it go. But when there is genuine sin involved, that's impossible, irresponsible, and unbiblical. We can't just overlook the problem. So once we have dealt with our sin, including confessing to our brother or sister, we must then go and show our brother his fault. 
This is something that's vital for restoring our relationship, right? And this is one of the key things about peacemaking. We're not just about trying to set the fire, put the fire out. We're actually trying to restore the relationship and bring healing. That's how Christ's peacemaking works. It's vital for restoring the relationship, but it also is essential for maintaining our personal walk with Jesus Christ. Because something made clear, Leviticus 19.17, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. Right? When there is an issue, in order to avoid hate and sin building up in our heart, we have to go to our brother and address it. When our brother is involved in sin, we can't look the other way. If we do, we become complicit in that sin. And so we must go. There comes a point in making peace where we must gently and lovingly confront the other person about their sin. But always with the goal of restoring the relationship. That's the gospel. In our old model, which we'll call peace-breaking, we loved this part, right? The confrontation part where we get to throw the book at them and call down fire from heaven and, and the judgment of God upon them. That was our favorite part. But it wasn't useful. It did not glorify God. It did not bring peace and reconciliation. In peacemaking, the goal is not to win, but to restore. And so we must prepare carefully. Instead of preparing carefully when to best jump the person, we need to prepare carefully when the most productive time is to having a loving discussion about sin. A time when both of you are well-fed, where you're both calm, where you're both in a place where you can focus and the, the environment is quiet and calm and pleasant. And then we get to this part, when we get to the confrontation, we actually need to do it in a manner that is totally different from our natural instincts. Because when we confront in love, we must do it to build the person up rather than tear them down. As Christ followers, we make peace amidst confrontation by obeying Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So confrontation that builds up means we have to back away from those sweeping declarations we love of what you did. And instead focus on how I was affected, how it made me feel. Because those you statements raise the shields. Let's express our feelings but not speculate on their feelings or motives. Have you ever noticed how people really love it when you tell them why they did something, what their motive was, what was going on in their mind? That never makes the situation better. Stick with the facts. Stick with you, not their mindset that you cannot read. We must truly and genuinely listen when they speak better understand their perceptions and their motivations and their experiences. And, and as we do these things, they, they let us explain sin in a way that does not automatically raise the shields. Whereby God's grace, they might actually hear us, truly hear us, rather than just plan their next response. We walk through this process of making peace, and, and it can take a long time. There's no telling how quickly or how slowly this 
third piece works, in which the person finally comes to the point where they confess their sin and ask forgiveness. But the last piece is that we must, at that point, go and be reconciled. We must truly forgive. Once the discussion has taken place, once sin has been confessed, we need to forgive the other person totally, completely, unconditionally, and forever. Just like we have been forgiven totally, completely, unconditionally, and forever by God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. This means we must never bring the issue up again. Though we must never gossip about it with others. We must never throw it in the other person's face the next time we have a conflict. And we must never permit it to create distance in our relationship. Jesus explains the importance of this in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not talking about losing salvation. What it is talking about is that if we have genuinely received the grace and forgiveness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, truly received that, truly experienced it, then we will show that grace and forgiveness toward others. And if we are faithful with these four practices, it's not only going to transform our personal conflicts, but it, but it lets us, enables us, equips us to make peace between others who are in conflict. We celebrate so often the truth that we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So we should celebrate that like every day. But at the same time, we need to remember that as a son or daughter of God, you have the responsibility now to be like your Heavenly Father. To make peace wherever you go. Peacemaking is risky. It can be painful. It surely was for Jesus. But the reward is enormous as we reflect the love and grace and mercy of our Father. In his letter, James tells us, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? This is what happens when we get involved in the world and make peace. A harvest of righteousness. This is how Christians change a violent world through the love of Jesus Christ. This is how the church engages our broken culture and and brings healing one little bit at a time. And so as we look around and we look at the terrible things that go on in the world, we look at the the terrible events in Las Vegas and, and all around, and we lament the unrighteousness of the world, We need to realize that it is by making peace and investing in the the work of God's kingdom here on earth that we promote the harvest of the only kind of righteousness that can actually fix the problems. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Lord God, this is a daunting challenge that you have laid before us actively make peace in a world that appears to be tearing itself apart. Lord, each of us can probably point to 
broken relationships in our own families or our own professional life, our personal life, our school life, wherever, Lord. There is so much conflict around us. We we look around and see the the division and the hatred that just seems to be ratcheting ever upwards in our in our county and in our state and our country and in the world. And you want us to make peace. Lord, we celebrate that as sons and daughters of you, you have equipped us with the Spirit. You have shown us the the pattern for peacemaking. So now, Lord, I pray that you will help each of us to remember to glorify you in all that we do. To be authentic and honest enough to have the integrity to recognize our own sin and to confess it, not only to you, but to those we've sinned against. To have the courage and the grace to go and confront sin in a loving way that builds up. And then to have the mercy and grace that we have received from you to truly and genuinely forgive others. Lord, help us to be your peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.